Welcome to the Top Order Podcast, back this week with This Week in Cricket, following our stellar run of interviews. Jared Kimber, Ian O'Brien, all coming out in the last few weeks. But this week, we're going to talk a little bit about New Zealanders performing well in county cricket. Australia, 2-0 down in the series against West Indies. Uh, West Indies themselves demolished by South Africa in test matches. We've got a whole heap of England news, Sri Lankan bubble breaches, and a heap, heap more. All coming up on the Top Order Podcast. Stay tuned. Well, we'll start with the jingoistic podcast that we are in uh, New Zealand. So some uh, Kiwis doing pretty well on the county circuit. We've seen plenty of uh, Twitter and Instagram uh, feeds. Um, Glenn Phillips, I think, that absolutely insane um, reverse sweep. But we've also got Finn Allen going well um, out in England as well and a whole heap of others. Lippies, what, what's caught your eye? Oh, well, yeah, there's about 10 or 12 of them that are out there. Most of them sort of our, our limited overs guys. There's, yeah, like you said, Glenn, Glenn Phillips, Fern Allen, Adam Milne's over there, Lockie Ferguson, Colin Monroe, Kyle Jameson's still there, Devin Conway, Colin de Gronholm, Ish Sodi, Daryl Mitchell, Jeremy Nisham. There's a whole host of them over there. I mean, I think that the person that you want to touch on the most at, at the moment is probably Glenn Phillips. He's He's been an incredible run of form with, a, with the bat, scored not, back-to-back 94s, not outs, Scored a 41, not out. I, th- I think, you know, the he took that amazing catch. It was actually a weekend for amazing catches. I don't know if you guys saw in the Indian women's game. Yeah. Yeah, just stunning. There's been some stunning catches around this weekend. So, yeah, definitely uh, on Twitter you guys should all check that out. But, yeah, Phillips, I think the interesting thing is is really he's developing as a 2020 player around the world. And, and I suppose... He's going to be a really important player, I think, for New Zealand going forward. In terms of what he was able to do last summer for us was he was able to up that tempo so quickly. So you've got the guys like uh, Kane Williamson who can kind of anchor your innings. And even Conway is, is doing that. You know, he he's someone that can up the tempo as well. But when Phillips came in last summer, he would just come in and straight away he was it was it seemed like something was happening. And, you know, that that's going to be a huge part of, of what we do uh, around the the T20 World Cup and, and in these next couple of series coming up. I don't know if you remember his uh, debut. Do you remember his debut? He looked yep. really, uh, he looked shocking actually with the bat. I remember he opened the batting or batted three, mm. uh, but now he's just uh, putting putting series back to back to back. He went to the Caribbean Premier League. He's played international cricket and now in the, in the blast, he's just consistently scoring runs, which is important. And I think he's a big, big part of our, definitely our white ball Set up the T Twenty stuff and, and the one day stuff. Colin De Grant, home a big innings, hundred and seventy four playing county cricket, I think it was mm. as well. Augurs well for him in that battle with Daryl Mitchell for that all rounder spot for New Zealand moving forward. Great to see him scoring runs and showing that he can put up big innings and you know be a useful contributor with the bat uh, moving forward as well. For me, I think Lockie and Adam Mill. Um, so hat tricks for both of them in yep. blast cricket. Uh, forfers and you know proving that that kind of speed kind of works anywhere in the world doesn't it makes a difference doesn't it well it's, it's gonna I mean you mentioned those guys and, and you think about that test lineup and, and we've just talked about what an amazing test bowling lineup we have and, and most of those guys are, are kind of in the mix Wagner's not but in, in the mix for the the white ball stuff there's going to be some really tough selections around the you know that that t20 world cup and and all of these uh, series that we've got coming up there's going to be some you know we talked when we talked to Sam Southey he talked about how you know it's not really realistic as much as he would like to play all of those games it's not realistic to go on all those tours and you know we're seeing all around the world these second string sides that are being put out there and and guys stepping up so it's, it's going to be great to, that 
over the next six months, we're probably going to see lots of opportunities for lots of different players and really fighting hard for those spots. Yeah, I think pace is important. I think uh, Jared uh, Kimber in his interview talked about New Zealand's bowling lineup and how, how rounded it or stuff it's missing, you know, the quality spinner. And we'll add a, a consistent, fast, fast, out and out fast bowler to that to that lineup. When we go to places like Australia or, or South Africa where it's hard and fast and they prepare pitches to bounce, we're going to need that sort of artillery. So uh, it's looking looking good from that perspective. What, what do you guys make of the the draw, actually, of, of the county cricket, Binksy? Because you're probably the best person to answer this. I mean, when I was looking at this... Uh, just kind of trying to figure out what was going on because you mentioned Colin de Gronholm playing a four-day game. They've been playing all these blast games and then they go into one random four-day game and then there's a couple more blast games and then there's one more four-day game and then I think we've got and then we've got the hundred starting in about ten days' time. I think on the the twenty-first, so it means you finish the blast competition, you play the hundred, and then you have the blast semi-finals and finals day like way after the blast is even, it, it just seems completely out of order to me. And and then, you know, again, going back to that conversation we had with Jared Kimber about the structure of New Zealand cricket and how they've actually kind of organised things into nice little pockets and tried to be as structured as possible. It seems like England's just kind of all over the place with that county stuff. Yeah, look, I think I'm the right person to ask for this question, mainly due to my parentage, um, <laughs> no cricketing knowledge. Um, hey, look, England has always been weird in the way that it's scheduled a lot of its county cricket. So um, if I go back to when I was you know, really interested in that county game, you had uh, 17, not 18 first-class counties until Durham came on board, I think, in 1991, 92. You would often have a situation where you were playing a four-day game in Southampton and then you would play three days of that four-day game. You would get in your car and drive to Yorkshire, play a one-day game and then come back and finish the four-day game at Southampton on the following Monday. So um, this is actually better than that situation. (laughs) Um, But uh, um, jokes aside, or or certainly a a very brief history lesson of English cricket aside, um, I think one of the key challenges is that the 100 competition was so um, controversial with the 18 first-class counties. They wanted so many concessions to make sure that their bums on seats for T20 blast cricket wasn't um, going to be affected, that you know they wanted a lot of surety from the ECB around the way that that tournament was going to be run. And I think that that has led to you know them needing to make a number of these uh, concessions to make sure that the blast... Um, gets fitted in. So, uh, how is that viewed now? Are the counties a bit more on board or for the hundred, or is it still pretty much the same? Oh, look, I, I don't know, and I, I think England now needs the hundred. Um, mm. England Cricket Board has only got about two million pounds in its reserves at the moment, which is you know the worst that bank account's been in a long, long time. They need the hundred to be a success financially. If there were any bubble breaches or any serious issues that you know affected the tournament it's going to be a very very difficult situation for them to get out of from a financial perspective um, and ultimately the counties all benefit from an ecb handout um, somewhere in excess of a million pounds per uh, county so they need that tournament i think to be a big success um, for english cricket I think to the detriment, though, of the four-day game, you know, if we look at England's test team at the moment, a lot of criticism that there's not too much spin being um, factored in um, and bookending the season with 
Um, with all due respect, Darren Stevens bowling 65 mile an hour and nibbling people out um, and taking heaps and heaps of wickets isn't really um, good, I don't think, for developing batters um, and developing spinners for the, the longer form of the game. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. Either end of the English summer, not great batting conditions, and you see that in the development or the lack of development in their top-order batters right now. You know They are struggling because they're not getting conditions conducive to batting because that's the way that their schedule is currently organised. Well, and you see in their... You see the the flip side of that, their white ball, you know, I, th- I think we'll get on to the, the white ball stuff soon, but, you know, their white ball depth is, is just inc- incredible. And, and Yeah, incredible and, and justifiably one of the top sides in the world in that format. But just before we leave New Zealand, I did just want to quickly, I've been thinking about all the stuff that we've talked about New Zealand and given New Zealand players a lot of credit and stuff, but... Um, and I know Jared Kimber kind of touched on it a little bit in the in the last chat, but I really wanted to give some credit to New Zealand cricket for the work they've done on actually scheduling and, and like planning for these tournaments because I think that's gone a little bit under the radar. I know there's been a bit of talk about how you know we were very lucky that we could get those tests in before the World Test Championship against England, but I don't I don't think that's luck. That's incredibly good planning. And they've organised that. And it's the same for the T20 World Cup. If you look at our schedule for, for the upcoming season, we've got Pakistan and Bangladesh away in four limited overs series before we go to the subcontinent for another, you know, it, now it's in the UAE, going to be in the UAE, but for the T20 World Cup. So it, all of those things are kind of working. And, and I'm just very impressed. And I, and I think they deserve some credit for all the work that they've been doing and actually putting New Zealand in positions to succeed. I think you're right. And I think it's starting to bear fruit in terms of the success that New Zealand has had over the last three, four, five years across all formats that they are starting to get better and better, if you like, or more and more marquee-style series, series that are important leading up to big tournaments that they wouldn't have got four or five years ago. They would, you know, Pakistan and Bangladesh would have been looking to play a contender, Australia or the West Indies or whoever. Now they're, they're looking at New Zealand saying, we would like to tour and going... That's brilliant preparation for us. We're going to get a test ourselves against one of the top sides in the world in that format, and we're going to get some bums on seats, and, you know, they're nice guys and they're well-liked across the international circuit. Great for New Zealand. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out also that it's not one decision. These are decisions that are being made regardless of what regime, Hessen-McCullum regime, the Stead-Williamson regime here. These decisions are being made consistently well across the board, which just shows to a great front office. You know, so they've made some good decisions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that'll be the CEO and uh, the marketing guys and, uh, you know, all of that backroom team. They've obviously got great credibility in world cricket, which is, yeah, really good for us, isn't it? Because it means we're probably going to get to see some good series down here, um, particularly if we manage to um, keep COVID at bay. Um, let's move across the ditch. So um, let's not talk about the COVID uh, too much. It's affecting the NRL and uh, as well as daily life in most mm-hmm. states in Australia now. Um, the cricket is not faring too much um, better either at the moment in this little series against the West Indies. No, Australia not ver- faring very well at all. Uh, very epic collapses in both of those games. Australia putting themselves in winning positions and not able to go on with it and defeat the West Indies in either of those two opening T20s. The most egregious one was the 6-for-19 collapse. Uh, just cruising. They needed less than a run of ball. They needed 30 off 40, something of that ilk. Two or three wickets down. Mitchell Marsh at the crease in control. Plenty of batting to come. Plenty of experience to come. Henriques, McDermott, maybe less so. Dan Christian, Agar. None of those guys able to get the job done. So the question that we had for Australian cricket 
three or four months ago before we started to talk about uh, white ball tours was what does the balance of that middle order look like and what does Australia's finishing look like heading into the T20 World Cup? We've answered none of those questions. In fact, we've gone backwards. You know, we've tried a couple of options there in two games that haven't worked at all. And it's not that they just haven't quite worked. It's they've spectacularly not worked. Um, Australia have enough all-rounders that they could go with three or four all-rounders in that middle order and have seven or eight bowlers if they wanted to. Um, I still think that Ashton Agar is one too high at six or seven. Uh, he needs to be down there in at sort of that seven or eight bracket. We need to find someone like Dan Christian, someone like Marcus Stoiner, someone like Mitchell Marsh to be able to finish in innings rather than to be able to get runs at the top of the order because we've got plenty of guys who can do that. I'm happy you mentioned Mitchell Marsh there. Uh, I, I feel like he keeps getting getting rammed down my throat, Mitchell Marsh. He's had plenty of chances over the years and, and is he now starting to bear fruit he's taking wickets he's scoring runs is, is this a, 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 a where, where it's turned the tide has turned for him a little bit a little bit yeah I think Mitchell Marsh is one of those guys who probably have got more opportunities than some other cricketers in that might be in the same position as him if it wasn't for the name Marsh potentially um, and I think that's maybe not quite the reality but maybe the perception among some cricket fans that he gets more of more rope because his name is Marsh Having said that, he has a pretty good white ball record. His test record's not great, but his white ball record is pretty good. The only knock on Mitchell Marsh at the moment is that he's got to turn those kinds of performances into winning performances. 50, 50 out in a losing cause where the team collapses after him is not great cricket. It's, it's good cricket, but it's not winning cricket. And if Australia are going to get anywhere near the semifinals of this T20 World Cup in the UAE... Guys like Mitchell Marsh, guys like Marcus Stoinis, guys like Dan Christian who have been around the traps a long, long time need to turn those kinds of performances into match-winning performances. And that's the only criticism I think you can really have of Mitchell Marsh right now because he is playing some very good cricket and I think he's starting to turn a lot of his cricket critics, me included, around a little bit with that consistency of performance. Now he just needs to start winning some matches. How much of this is is actually off the field? Before they came out or went out to the West Indies, there was a lot of talk around an honesty session in, in the Australian camp where they sort of uh, addressed concerns with the coaching and, and the toughness that's being being put on the players. Mm. If you've watched the, the Ashes uh, series on Amazon, you'll see players like Usman Khawaja have called uh, Justin Langer out before around these things. And even in the news the last couple of days, Justin Lang is talking about a contract extension. This is all stuff off the field mm -hmm. and, and the performances are possibly suffering on the field. Look, it's entirely possible. I mean, there is there are some waters to navigate for that Australian cricket team off the field in terms of the relationship between the coach and the players. And we've known that for a little while now. I don't think that's um, I don't think that's news to anyone listening to this podcast that Australia have some work to do in terms of their culture off the field and making sure that the personalities that you've got in your coaching setup are able to get through to the players. And you hear about it in football terms, you hear about it in rugby league terms, you hear about it in rugby terms all the time. A coach is losing the dressing room. And I think Justin Langer, if he's not now, at some point in the past, he was dangerously close to losing that dressing room. And I think we've just got to make sure that we've got the right people around Justin Langer so that the not the own that his message is not the only message that's getting through to the players. A guy like Darren Lehman would be a wonderful foil for Justin Langer if they could both get in the same room and get on the same page as far as the direction of the team is concerned. Because I think the players would respond to Lehman very, very well from a man management point of view. 
and then you've got Justin Langer kind of setting the the standard as far as performance is concerned. I think that could be a potentially good combination for Australia. I don't think it'll happen. We've just raised it a little bit talking about New Zealand, about how strong their back office is and, and I guess the calmness of their cricketing administration. Is, is that potentially one of the issues for Australia in, in that they've not necessarily got that support structure wrapped around and maybe the player power element just a little bit too much to the fore? Player power is very, very strong in Australian cricket because you've got guys like David Warner, you've got guys like Stephen Smith, you've got those senior guys command a tremendous amount of what New Zealanders would call mana, you know, that tremendous amount of respect and and power within Australian cricket circles. And I think there's a little bit of a tug of war going on there as I sort of see it from the outside between the coaching setup who would like things done one way and the players who think, no, no, we know what we're doing here. Unfortunately for the players, the results over the last two, three, four years aren't backing up that point of view that the players have, that we know what it is that we're doing. Sometimes they are. The great series against Pakistan, great series against New Zealand and tests. Haven't won a World Cup for a little while. Um, haven't performed particularly well ever in a T20 tournament from my memory. Uh, so there's a lot of work that Australia need to do to make sure that their on-field performances are matching what they're trying to do in that coaching setup. So I guess just before we move on onto the West Indies, what what part of Australia's game from batting or bowling is actually most worrying to you at, at this stage? Most concerning to me is finishing. Finishing that batting innings is is very concerning to me because if you have a look at the top sides in the world, they've got tremendous finishing in their batting. England have got Butler and they've got Stokes and they've got um, Morgan and they've got a myriad of options in terms of finishing an innings. India have got batsmen who could finish the innings coming out of their ears. West Indies, likewise, you've got Pollard, you've got Hetmeyer, you've got Peran, you've got uh, Bravo, you've got um, Andre Russell. Australia don't have any of those ready-made options. And even New Zealand's finishing, you talked about Glenn Phillips. All of those top four or five teams in the world have got great finishing options and Australia don't have any at the moment. I'll, I'll leave Baldy alone for a second here because uh, we're, we're sort of barraging him on the Aussie stuff. But Quite happy to take it, actually. I, I'm really enjoying this conversation. Well, I, I, <laughs> well, you can take it if you want then. Uh, it's up to you, but I'll open it to the floor. There's a lot of guys that haven't gone on this tour for Australia. You know, um, Aaron Finch has come out and said that um, it was already scheduled that Warner and, and Cummins would not go on the tour, but then you've had guys like Maxwell Stoyness, Richardson, both well, both Richardsons, and Steve Smith's obviously not there because of an injury. Lubbershane. Yeah, Lubbershane's over in, in county cricket. What do you make about the guys that actually have decided not to go? Because that that is definitely a, a choice. It's not a matter of them being rest. You know, Smith and uh, Smith injured Warner and Cummins actually scheduled rest, but the other guys who are not necessarily always in the side, some of those guys. And I know there has been a lot of bubble cricket, but actually Australia hasn't played cricket for, for quite a while. I know they do have a lot of tours. Like, I'm not saying that this is easy, but, it, you know, even just thinking back to when we asked Tim Souther's same question, he said, I want to play every game, you know, and, and it feels like the this Australian side... I can't remember the last time that they actually had a full strength side for their T20 lineup, and and I don't even know what their full strength T20 lineup is. And we we are building, you know, the next big tournament is a T20 World Cup. So what do we make of all of this? Look, I guess the history books are going to tell us who's right, and that's not just going to be who wins the tournaments. It's going to be who manages to get longevity out of their players. Um, I think you know th- this situation is not going to go away in the next uh, twelve to eighteen months. I wouldn't have thought with COVID um, having an impact on the way that cricket's played. The puzzling bit for me, to your point, Lippy, is that 
we're so close to that T20 World Cup and Australia don't seem to be prioritising that. Whereas, you know, England have been very, very um, deliberate in making sure that Owen Morgan has had his pick of white ball cricketers for uh, that T20. India, similar as well. So are Australia prioritising the Ashes? Are they looking for, you know, at a different set um, of priorities? Or are they at the forefront in terms of managing player welfare? And they're saying, you know what, results actually aren't the most important thing here. We've got broadcast deals to fulfil. We've got player welfare to look after. Something's got to give, and, and this is the way that we're going to approach it. Yeah, I guess my challenge to that is actually around... Usually when you do that rest and rotation, it's the bowlers are the ones you, you don't want to get overworked. And you've got Stark, you've got uh, uh, Hazelwood. Hazelwood. Coming, with him? It's it, it, not a physical Cummins. thing, though, is it? That's that's the thing. They're protecting, I guess, mm. the players in and out of the bubble, regardless of whether you're a spinner or a seamer mm. or a, a batter or a keeper or even a coach or a, you know, a, a masseur. Mm. You know, being in that environment is pretty tough from a mental perspective. I, I guess that was kind of my question to Bordy earlier. I think that there is a massive political element to this, definitely in Australian cricket at the moment. Uh, but you're right, we don't actually know what Australia's best T20 side is. When they came to New Zealand, uh, this is very similar in terms of the squad very that similar, came here yep. that, that did get beaten quite well. Yeah, and I think that the the puzzling one for me is Stoinis, and obviously Stoinis has made a personal decision about where he's at physically and mentally and, and, and where he wants to be in terms of his preparation, but he would be the guy competing directly against Maxwell, against Marsh, and against Dan Christian, potentially, for one of those all-rounder spots in that middle order. If I were he, I would be making sure that I have as many opportunities as I could to put my case in front of selectors, because right now, Mitchell Marsh is starting to maybe just edge his nose in front in, in that race, and there's probably not room for all of those guys in that Australian middle order unless they go all-rounders from four through to seven. One question for you, Bordy, just before. I do want to talk about the West Indies, because we should talk about how good they're going. Does Mitchell Stark worry you that he's going for he's so expensive? 10 in the first inning, uh, 10 in the first game and 12 in the second. Yeah, it is a little bit concerning because typically the white ball format is his stronger form, right? It's normally red ball cricket where he kind of struggles for rhythm a bit and he picks up a white ball and he sort of swings it around corners and is and nigh on unplayable sometimes. So his form is a little bit concerning to me, offset a little bit by the fact that we've found Josh Hazelwood and he seems to be doing really, really well from a white ball perspective. So we're going to have... Where'd you find him? He's, he's pretty handy, that guy. He's, he's, he's been reasonable, three for 12 in that first T20, a, a, a tremendous shift for him. So Cummins, Hazelwood, a couple of Richardsons, and maybe Riley Meredith, and we're, we're pretty okay for pace bowling depth going into that T20 tournament. Uh, we've got two decent spinners. I would like to have Stark in my best 11, I think, if we could. If he's not in form, then we've got some backup. And uh, finally, the West Indies. So they were taking a lot of heat off the South African tour. Kieran uh, Kyron uh, Pollard was was getting a lot of heat around the batting and how they've been performing. He said that they've gone away and done a lot of work in the nets, but also from a mental preparation perspective. It seems to be coming up trumps here. Good good, good runs from Hitmeyer, uh, who's the other one who scored? Andre Russell. Russell. So I'll, I'll give you a chance to talk about him in a second. And then, of course, their bowlers uh, are bowling really well. The uh, emergence here of Hayden Walsh just coming through and, and, and ripping the Aussies apart. And Ivan mm-hmm. McCoy as well. You know, yes, look good. as well. So what do you think, uh, Bingsy? Uh, the thing that really caught my eye in this was that first game, um, obviously a relatively low scoring game from a T20 perspective, the way the West Indies celebrated that victory um, said a massive amount to me about the fact that they seem to have that team mentality, that buzz about their cricket. 
that sort of wanting to bask in each other's success because um, there's some pretty big egos and some pretty big name players in and around that side. You look at guys that have performed in the IPL, Evan Lewis, Chris Gale, Hetmeyer, we've mentioned Nicholas Poran, Andre Russell, but they all seemed, uh, Dwayne Bravo, they all got together at the end of that game as if they'd won a World Cup final. Mm. Um, and just to see that level of enthusiasm from that West Indies side, I'd be pretty worried that they're, you know, they're actually there and thereabouts for this T20. They are so dangerous T20 coming World into Cup. a big T20 tournament, and aren't they? bloody good to watch as well. Fantastic to yeah. watch. Oh, I, yeah, I completely agree. That's what stood out to me. And, and you see the chat afterwards, and it's, um, I think, in the second game, we've had uh, Fidel Edwards bowled that ripper slower ball and got a wicket with it. And he said, you know, I don't... Dwayne Bravo taught me that, like yesterday. You know, that, like they 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 are very, they seem very together. And geez, if that if that team is together with all of the strike power they have, and and what's actually impressive about you know you think about traditionally the West Indies bowling attack, it's this you know just rips you apart. This bowling attack, they're all incredibly smart bowlers, is what strikes me now because like all the slow balls they've been getting wickets with, all like Obed McCoy got a. Brilliant slow ball, get wickets in that first game as well. They've got they've got some spinners who are doing the job in the white ball form. A dynamic fielding side as well. They're just absolute guns in the field. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, great, great to watch and and, and yeah. plenty of experience there to to lead them in that big tournament. You know, you're not just talking about Pollard and Russell. You're talking about Dwayne Bravo. You're talking about Chris Gale. So much domestic and international experience in that side. They're going to be a real danger for that T20 World Cup, and I'm really looking forward to it. So look, we'll wrap up this first segment of this week in cricket. We will be back after the break uh, to talk more about England and Sri Lanka and a whole host of other things. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the pod. So some white ball cricket going on in England at the moment. We talked a little bit about the scheduling, but Sri Lanka recent visitors are now um, after a very, very hastily convened Complete replacement squad uh, from England there. Tuning up in a three-match series against Pakistan as well. So, um, yeah, going pretty well from a form perspective. Four from uh, four, from four, my boys. Um, despite our soccer debacle this morning, but we won't go into that too we much. Won't, we won't mention the soccer football. But getting into the white ball stuff for England, a complete squad replacement, which was an interesting strategy rather than postpone the series, they decided that they would replace their entire squad. So guys like Phil Salt getting a call up, Ben Stokes to captain England in that one-day format. They still put out a pretty good side uh, and were successful as well. And then uh, Liam Livingston, I think we've got to go maybe Jack Gregory as well. So guys that we saw in the BBL in Australia over the last couple of years getting a go uh, for that England side and they and they gave a great account of themselves. Yeah, I guess the biggest thing for me, you know, this is not just strength in depth in in terms of, you know, an 18-person squad and bringing in your rotations. This is literally 18 guys. And, man, you know, it it reminded me, I guess, of that, you know, when you're Sunday captain um, for your club side and everybody goes down um, on a, you know, a Saturday night before you're friendly or whatever (laughs) and you're trying to find seven or eight players. Can you imagine the carnage on the phone? trying to talk to the county chairman and say, we're actually going to pull these guys out of the middle of a championship fixture and we need them down here and we need to get them into a bubble um, pretty quickly and they're going to be playing for England. And then not to mention even getting the shirts printed and uh, the cap presentations and all of the logistics around that. I think Ben Stokes even forgot who two of the debutants <laughs> were at the toss because there was that many in the, in the side. I think five debutants in that 
um, in that side. But yeah, good line from him. Didn't he say? I think he said at the toss, we've got a completely new lineup. Just eleven changes today. But yeah, like you say, there's there's some guys that you know. Are, uh, no surprise, really. David Milan coming into the white ball um, ODI side. Zach Crawley looking pretty good in uh, one of the games. James Vince uh, recalled. Um, but then, as you say, some guys that we've not seen too much of. John Simpson. I was really impressed with Bryden Cass um, from Durham. Um, hit 90 mile an hour in, in his spell. Uh, useful 30-odd in that first um, uh, game as well. So, yeah, look, really, really good signs for the, the England white ball team. On a, on a wider point, I, I was kind of thinking about, I mean, we've had this, we've had uh, India's got their uh, white ball side over, you know, that's, that's it's not really their second team. It's sort of one and a half teams because there's there's a bunch of guys there that are in their, their white ball setup, but they're just not in the test setup. So the specialists there, it's not exactly, you know, their second 11 like we're talking about with England. But do, do we think it's just easier to step up, I suppose, in white ball cricket? Because I feel like, certainly from watching the test matches, you know, that we've been really test focused for New Zealand, it's a completely, it almost feels like they're two different sports now. Like the, the gap, the difference between white ball cricket and red ball cricket seems to be widening, I, I feel. And and also the fact that they play so much, you know, franchise cricket. We talk, You talked mentioned those guys that have been playing BBL. They play all around the world in all these sort of different conditions against all players from all around the world. Anyway, like, do you, do we actually think that's making the standard standard higher, and also just that step up so much easier? Well, you're saying they're two different sports, but when Rishabh Pant tries to bring the 2020 game to Test cricket, you guys are all up at arms about it. Well, that's because it didn't work. <laughs> anyway, um, no, you're 100 percent right. They are turning into two different, very different skill sets, mm. and we're seeing we're seeing this happening more and more. We're having a red ball side and a white ball side playing or going on different to- or different tours at the same time, which you just couldn't fathom that even five years ago, having having the your international team playing in two different places in the world. They they are becoming like that. In terms of stepping up, I think that it is a lot a lot easier in the white ball cricket. I think that this is also a bit of a it, it's a bit deceptive in that England actually haven't been challenged here yet. No. They they went out and they rolled Pakistan. It was a great uh, great spell, a couple of spells from uh, Saqib Mahmood. Uh, he bowled some absolute crackers, uh, and um, then they just chased it down with the two sort of experienced batsmen in the red ball game. They were able to apply themselves and under no pressure got it done. Great job! And then they batted well in the second innings. Uh, sorry, first innings of the second game. It's just the pressure wasn't there. I'd like to see them being in, in those pressure situations and see how they respond. Uh, but yeah, Pakistan have been well below the mark so far. Yeah, so I, th- I think I want to pick up on, on a couple of points. So the, the first one I'll say is the changing of the squad uh, rather than postponing the tour. It was really the only option open. We've got to remember that West Indies and Pakistan and Australia last year came over to COVID-ravaged um, United Kingdom into bubbles to play and help out the ECB essentially to make sure that they actually didn't miss a day's international cricket um, last summer in the height of COVID England. Um, So I I think there's a little bit of payback here that Pakistan were asked to come over and live in those sort of bubble environments. You can't just call a tour off because 
you know, three or four of your guys have, have, have got COVID, you know, the, the show must go on. So I think credit to, um, yeah, credit to Pakistan um, and credit to the ECB. You'll remember England left South Africa at the first sign of a sniffle in the South African camp. Would have been very easy for Pakistan to say, hold on a second here. We feel as if uh, we're not safe. We're, we're, we're off ski. So a lot of credit um, to Pakistan. Absolutely. To, to the point on the, the white ball versus red ball thing, for me, it just comes back to this chat that goes around quite a lot now, knowing your role. I think it's obviously easier to know your role in a one-day um, outfit. And these guys have played so much of that cricket. They're also going in and out of these franchise teams. So who they're playing for doesn't really matter as long as they know what their role is in that side. They can go in and if they, you know if they know that they're the you know the guy that bats three and and you know you want in, you want to strike eighty in the first. 20 overs and then you accelerate and finish with 120 strike rate then you know that that's your role you contrast it to the way that four day cricket's being played Hashim Amla's a great example of this um played um in a Surrey game where De Grandhomme got a big 100 for Hampshire in the first innings batted Surrey out of the game Hashim Amla scored 37 off 278 balls just dug in knew his role um and I just think from a test cricket perspective they're just not learning that craft as much and so I think that's why we're seeing that this ability to translate that form from one franchise or team from another um, into the white ball form. What do we think about um, an, another kind of bigger picture question? And, and I know you just mentioned it before about strike rates and things, but even thinking back to what, what Australia's performance in, in those T20s that we've seen so far against the West Indies, it seems like uh, a lot of sides around the world have kind of picked up on England's idea of, and I know we've talked about this before, how England in the white ball format just goes for it for the whole 50 overs, for the whole 20 overs or whatever it is. They say, look, we're, we're going to try and get 400 or whatever, and this is how we're going to bat. But, I mean, Sri Lanka, you know, thinking about back to that Sri Lanka series, they were in some terrible situations, and then they, the guys were getting out. They were, it were like 80 for four, I think. I've written it down. Hasaranga, like... In the second ODI, in the 21st over, 86 for four, Hasaranga hold out to cow off Sam Curran. In the third ODI, he did the exact same thing. They were 87 for five at, at about the 20th or in the 20th over. In the 15th over, 63 for four, Fernando runs down the wicket and hits it straight to mid off off Tom Curran. Like, I just don't understand. There just doesn't seem to be any awareness of the situation in, in those scenarios. And that's where that's where good test cricketers and great test cricketers are, are, are crafted and, and learn and, and grow into tremendous cricketers because test cricket tests your plans B, C, D, E, F. It tests your ability to adapt and, and over a long period of time to succeed by being adaptable to certain situations. That's what was very disappointing in the Australian chase. All they had to do was nurdle the ball around the field and they could have walked home 20 off 30. Like any international side with with four wickets in hand should, should walk in 20 off 30. But Australia weren't able to do it because they don't they weren't able to adapt to the situation as as well as they should be able to. And that's what's a little bit concerning about cricket at the moment is that players are so focused on analytics and matchups and these micro skills that they're not actually using the top two inches of their brain and thinking, okay, hang on here, I've got 20 off 30, I can just rotate the ball into the gaps, I can get to the other end and run singles, and that's going to win the game for me. Or, you know, any other number of possible variations on on that kind of thing. It's just not quite happening at the moment because they're so focused on those micro skills. 
I think that it's a bit harsh also on Sri Lanka. A lot of their players haven't been to England, uh, played international cricket. England are the best white ball team at the moment in terms of the, the World Cup holders. Oh, no doubt. Uh, and obviously we will get into it in a bit, bit later, but they're playing with no contracts in place or no actual contracts in place. So there's a lot of things going against Sri Lanka there. And yeah, I, I think that they, they you see that in the, in the performance that they've put on the field. I don't think, yeah, they'll but, be pleased with it anyway. Part of it, to be honest, is the fault of the cricketing media. And I think we've got to, you know, call ourselves out for that. I've just called ourselves the cricketing media, but that that's fine. And, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. When we think about the England white ball squad, um, who do you think of in terms of the batting? You know, who, who do you sort of, you know, who would you have as a poster on your wall of that side <laughs> if, you, if you were so inclined to do so? I guarantee you'd be telling me it's Jason Roy, it's Joss Butler... It's Owen Morgan, it's Bear Ben Stokes, Bearstow. Nobody has mentioned Joe Rooter averages 51 in, in one-day cricket, a strike rate of 80-odd and 6,000 runs. We've almost sort of discounted that method of playing for this gung-ho, you know, what, why bother getting 40 off 30 balls when you can get 25 off 10 balls? It, it, you know, there's a mentality now that that's what the game is about and we forget that those kind of players to Baldy's point if a guy like Rooted had been in that situation he'd just gone easy or Kane or yeah. Kane well, or, and that's what struck me so much about watching those and we don't those. value those players as much not I don't enough. think not yeah. enough but, I mean but the other side to that coin is that Andre Russell's 24 off 8 balls was much more valuable than Mitchell Marsh's 40 off 30 balls or whatever he got in that situation yeah because because the guys in front of of Andre Russell enabled Andre Russell to come in there with that amount of time and go, right, I can, I've got a free license here. The guys coming in after Mitchell Marsh had no platform. Well, well actually, no, they did. They had a great platform. They just weren't able to execute on it. The second game, they had no platform because their, their batters didn't set up that innings correctly I mean by applying themselves a, to the... I mean that from a, who am I going to put a poster on the wall of? Oh, it's definitely going to be Andre Russell. Andre Russell. Yeah, fair or, enough. Or, to answer your question about the English team, it would be Nick Knight. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that's... Because of his hair? It's a great point, though, and and I just don't really understand. You, you know, you say uh, Sri Lanka. Obviously, there are many, many things going on in the in the backroom stuff that that are just not right, and and we'll, we'll get to a couple of those in in the minute. But I, I don't think it's an excuse to just slog out. Like it, 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 that's just not using your brain, and I don't I don't think that there's any excuse for that. And and it, it struck me, you know, you mentioned Root. That's exactly right. You know, if Kane, if Kane was in those situations, you're not putting yourself in a situation where you actually have a chance. You're going, okay, well, I need 300 to win this game, and if I don't get there, then we've lost. Instead of going, well, New Zealand, we're in this, the semi-final of the World Cup, we're going to just get to 230 and give ourselves an option to try and win this game. The, the greatest sort of example there is Binksy Sashim Amala example. His form of getting a team through, I know we're talking about a four-day cricket, but his, t his, his way to do it was to hunker down and not get out. Mm -hmm. Whereas the way to get yourself out of trouble at the moment, definitely in white ball cricket, is to hit out slog, yeah. um, rather than, than take it as deep as you can into the innings. Yep. The, the one thing I would say, though, Amla's strike rate of 13.3 <laughs> wouldn't have helped even Australia in their situation. <laughs> like, there, there wouldn't have been enough balls left. No, you would need to get, you need to get him to the other end at least and... And Raj, why don't you take us through a little bit of the Sri Lanka stuff? I know you, you took us through it a couple of weeks ago, I think maybe even our last time before these interviews on, on our This Week in Cricket. 
the, this contract situation, it's not getting any better. And now there's talk of, of Angelo Matthews, who's, you know, one of their, their better players. Well, if not by their far best, their best player. By, 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 by far, far their best player at the moment and, and someone who's been a, an outstanding performer for a long time for them, considering retirement just because all this stuff's going on in the background. You've got Kusil Pereira, who sounds like he's going to be stripped of the white ball captaincy because of all this chat, even though he was picked for these games. Like it's just going wrong. You got players breaching the bubble as well, well, going into town, and 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 we won't, we probably can't unpack that in any kind of detail. But it just seems like there's just all sorts of things going wrong off the field for Sri Lankan cricket at the moment. So, with Sri Lankan cricket, I guess the, the first first place to start here is that they're they're trying to put it, they're trying to reform it, trying to reform it at a board level. They've put Tom Moody in there uh, as as the operations. Or I'm not sure of his actual title, but I'm just going to say general manager of cricket. Um, that's where they're trying to have a little bit of a reform. And they've started with looking at the contracts and how they are based, and they're trying to base them on a performance sort of standard, which which, which is fine. However, when you're doing things like this, you need to have the buy-in of the players. I don't know if it's been done with that. Actually, I could probably tell you I don't feel like it has been done. <laughs> Certainly from the outside, it that. doesn't feel like that, does it? The other side of this coin is you have guys like Aravinda De Silva who have been consulted, who have looked at, at how this is done, they want to. They want Sri Lanka to succeed, and they think the best way to help them succeed is to give them that motivation, and that's how they're going to win games. I think that this this is a long way from being solved because they're not even forget being at the same table. They're not even in the same boardroom at the moment in terms of where they are from this negotiation standpoint. Uh, I do like the fact that they're talking about performance based incentives. However, I think it's a bit unrealistic to give them. Uh, targets around beating you know one of the top three sides in the world that's where you're going to make your your money it's a bit unrealistic there oh, I think I think it's scary for them I think that they I think it's going to get worse before it gets better if you ask me just looking from the outside and looking at that performance that they put out there and you know it they're going home now they're going to be playing India in this white ball series potentially with a second string side as well because they've got had their own troubles with COVID grant flower is, is tested positive and, and an, an analyst I think is tested positive as well potentially even a player from their other biosecure bubble is tested positive so there's all sorts of things going on there they've already had to postpone that tournament or that series by about a week it, it feels like that the depth really isn't there and it feels like things are, are you know we could be talking about I feel like we might be talking about Sri Lanka there's obviously this point system now to make the the World Cup I feel like they can. They're, they're potentially in trouble, in trouble and they're they might not trouble. be one of the teams that they might be one of the teams that are really fighting for their life as we come to the, the I, next World Cup I, cycle. I think I think they're going to be the team that has to go through the repechage. Honestly, mm. at the moment, looking at the form of those international teams, Pakistan are ahead of them. Bangladesh are probably ahead of them. The West Indies definitely ahead of them. So they're right. They're right in that fight uh, to get through in in the first round. The, the the biggest issue actually with that side is that. You look at sides around the world and you've got your X-Factor players. Where are the X-Factor players for Sri Lanka? At the moment, they're not quite there. We mentioned guys like um, Angelo Matthews, considering retirement. If you actually look back over the years, he's actually been treated quite poorly by the Sri Lankan cricket board in terms of how he's been selected, when he was in captain, when he was the captain, what kind of support he got. Uh, so I wouldn't, I'm wouldn't. i not surprised to hear that he's he wants to go in and do some mercenary stuff playing 2020 cricket around the world why wouldn't you mm. yeah look a lot more to play out i think and 
Yeah, we, we talked about it a little bit with the governance of the game, you know, when the front office isn't, you know, working well, then often the back office isn't either. And there's plenty, plenty going on, both on and off the field that, you know, isn't isn't really good. And I think the other component here is, it, it's to me, also just showing this gulf between the big three teams, India, Australia, England, in terms of the money that's going um, to those nations and what effect that's now having on some of these uh, nations in the mid-table, if you like. Um, I think it's going to be you know, a, a, an increasing factor, particularly as we go into this sort of um, COVID or continuing these COVID times where the, you know, the broadcast deals are going to be all important as well. So, yeah, it's going to be a, yeah, a long road back for Sri Lanka, I think. I think, it's a, I think you've, you've just hit the nail on the head there. I, I think that teams are, you know... I, I, I've given New Zealand a rap before already, but those big three teams, if people are not, you know, it's been happening for a while, but the gap is widening for between those three big teams. And you have to be smart now about what you do as an international side to, to keep up with them. Because if you're not, then you are going to get left behind. And it, it certainly feels that way now when, you know, even, even just thinking about New Zealand and, and when teams come here, if they're not big three teams that come here, I just assume we're going to win every game. Like I, I don't even, even, necessarily think about it anymore because it just feels like the gap is so wide between all of those other sides and and it's 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 really worrying I think as as uh, you know I, I just listened to a bit of the the Jared Kimber podcast and Baldy you were talking about that 92 World Cup and we're talking you're talking about how the you know it was the first time we'd seen all these different sides and how cool that was to see all of them and if suddenly we just it, it trends towards three or four sides being way better than everyone else, then I think that's going to be to the detriment of cricket. I think I think probably being fair, there's five or six in that top tier. Six, I think, in that top tier, really. And then you're starting to fall away you know, pretty rapidly after that. He made a great point, actually, around uh, sides around the world are worried about being relegated. But you actually have to... You have to earn that spot. You can't just assume that you'll always be in that that top tier. That's right. So if, if you were the ICC with this this sort of thing, how do you how do you sort of level that playing field in terms of do, do you do you go there and have a look at their governance structure and and help them out in that regard? Do some kind of consulting service there because obviously there are uh, you know four to five maybe six boards around the world that are probably getting left behind. Well, I, I think that what they're doing in terms of the points stuff is actually a, a good thing. Like, you know, it's going to be a pretty big wake-up call if Sri Lanka does miss a, t- miss a World Cup or something like that. Like, making all these series relevant and making them important and making sure that they actually have to start winning some games and they can't just assume that they're going to be in those tournaments mm. is a good start. But I, I don't know. I don't have the answers in terms of how you actually fix... You know, you, you can't step in and, and uh, take each board and make them good because that's just not how the world works. Do, do you think that how would, how would like world cricket react to this? If we did have a promotion relegation thing, if, if, if a team like Sri Lanka were to drop out and then a team like Ireland were, for example, to get their funding, they moved up into that spot and they got the funding. Is, is that something that the world would take? Well, I don't know. I think it provides some interest to the game, but I'll take it from this perspective. Sri Lanka, were the heir apparent into test cricket and we're going back what 25 30 years now so um they obviously really came on the scene in that 1996 world cup um and it had taken them a long long time to win a test match um from uh yeah from a five-day perspective but 
international cricket had put a lot of time and effort into getting Sri Lanka up to speed. Did the same with Pakistan as well. Um, the, the same with Zimbabwe Doing as well. Doing the same with Afghanistan. Doing the same now. with Afghanistan. So th- the problem is that you're trying to create this model where you've got 10, 11, 12 viable test playing nations, all of whom need a massive amount of investment of cash to get them to the stage where they can play a test match. Ireland, um, obviously, were only even afforded a four-day test match against England and nearly, um, you know, they nearly went from being banana uh, banana skin to actual bloody banana because they bowled England out. Um, and it was only, you know, a, a few late order runs that really um, got England back in that game, as an example. But then if you go to promotion relegation and you've got this short-termism of there's a two-year cycle and if you're at the bottom, you're out, are you going to put, the money into the longer term infrastructure or are you going to put the money into just trying to make sure that you you, you can scrape through you know are you going to go grassroots or are you going to make sure that um you know to use Ireland as an example you make sure Boyd Rankin's going to play for you for another couple of years because he might just get you into that um into that sort of uh, next stage of the the tournament so it's a really difficult one as to how they how they approach it I guess we're saying to waffle a little bit now but the the problem that's here, not fair. <laughs> the, the the other problem here is that as the ICC is governing the game, it's their job to be worried about the product. And if you have teams like um, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, but they're toothless. The ICC are toothless when it comes but, to actually making boards do what they want. We know it's run by India, Australia, and England. But if if they say that if you don't perform, you're going to be in the the B tier. That, that makes them have to do something. It's just you can't have test matches finishing in two to three days. You lose the product, you lose the marketing, you lose the revenue. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's from, no argument. From, from waffle to nothing in look, one, one well, fell link. Well, well, you, look, can't, you can't beat Raj's comment there. I mean, he's, he's absolutely right. The only, the only problem, of course, is that Sri Lanka just don't have enough good test cricketers. And, you know, Bangladesh have gone through that period, Zimbabwe have gone through that period. Those big sides have been lucky because they've got such a big base of players from which to choose and they've got good pathway systems that they keep churning out test-quality players. And unfortunately, at the moment, Sri Lanka's pathway system is not turning out and their first-class system is not turning out test-quality players at the moment. And that's the, the real concern. But the thing is, they can do it because they've got two, three, four players who, who are pushing for that World Eleven of all time. Yep, absolutely. You know I mean? Yep, so. absolutely. They have in the past had, had tremendous, tremendous test cricketers and they've been lucky. Sometimes they've had two or three of them at the time and that's good enough for them to dominate world cricket to a certain extent. They just don't have it at the moment. So before we ramble on even more, Border, you just wanted to give a quick shout out before we leave the pod, I think. Oh, just a quick shout out in the Bangladesh Zimbabwe test that's gone on this week. Uh, Mamadullah, 150, I think not out in that um, big first innings for Bangladesh and then promptly uh, decided that he's going to retire from Test cricket. So big news uh, for Bangladesh fans that Mamadul is going to retire, going out at the top of his game, as I think we'd all want to. Uh, I'm just not quite sure that 150 not out is the place to do it. I think he's got more left in him. But uh, uh, a great career from from Mamadula and a dominant Test win for uh, Bangladesh over Zimbabwe in Harare at the moment. Yeah, he probably just wants the call, doesn't he? I'll go on. I have one more series, son. Go on. I'll go on then. You've You've twisted my arm. But look, that just about wraps up the pod for this evening. We may have mentioned at several points during the pod, uh, we interviewed Jared Kimber. It's a really, really good listen, so watch out for that in your feed. We also talked reasonably recently to Ian O'Brien and a whole host of others, including 
jubilant Tim Southey after that World Test Championship final. So dip back into the feed um, for a bit of feel-good factor from New Zealand's World Test Championship win. But for us, we'll be back next week with This Week in Cricket. Check us out on our website, www.thetoporderpodcast.com. And we'll see you next week. Good night. God bless.